0: If you blink, you've gone too far We all get our news from the gal behind the bar It takes a village to raise this community And even if you don't go to church, you say grace Or give your thanks before you eat This is us, a small town in America And put simply, we like things how they used to be We got one-stop sign. The bar closes at 9 and we got an Exxon, you can't miss it, it's up there on the right. And this is home, we take care of our own. If you can't relate, get back on the interstate and go.
1: Well hi everybody and welcome to the latest episode of Climax the Podcast. Love letter to a small town, a product of the Climax Scott's digital network. Please make sure you're subscribed to all the feeds for this show, which you can get at ClimaxThePodcast.com, and also keep up to date with everything that's going on with CSDN at ClimaxScottsDigitalNetwork.com. There's a lot there now, and there's about to be a whole lot more. I really just want to jump into this because this episode's going to come out about a day and a half to two days late this week. There's lots of projects going on right now coming out of the relationship with Climax Scotts High School. There's projects I'm working on this week. And this episode, this was supposed to be an easy one. I captured this audio a few months ago, and honestly, these historical archives are kind of like my cheat episodes because they're theoretically easier to do. But this one ended up being in multiple parts, and I kind of had to almost break a glass and then glue it back together. But it's here now. Thank you for your patience. Let's get right into the business up front. That business up front is important because Climax the Podcast is a free show to listen to, but it is not a free show to produce, and these folks help keep the lights on here at Climax the Podcast. Big thanks to our OG sponsor, Kristen Wachowski with State Farm. Kristen is a CS graduate with her office in Battle Creek, across from Ollie's and behind Chicago Title, right there at the intersection of 20th and Columbia. And Kristen's somebody that you can trust her and her whole team with anything you have for needs in the world of insurance, whether that's auto insurance, motorcycle, homeowners, condo, renters, business, life, etc., etc. I'm missing several, if you can believe it. She specializes in a whole lot of things. And I can tell you from personal experience, Kristen and her team make it really, really easy to take care of you and your family's insurance needs. If you're in a position to get new insurance or reevaluate your insurance, you can stop by the office. You can give the team a call at 269-968-5130 or visit the website callkristin.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-I-N, callkristin.com. And Climax the Podcast is brought to you in part by Eldred Homestead Bed and Breakfast. Located at 6378 South 44th Street in Climax, it's one of the most unique stays you can have in the entire Kalamazoo County area. And I'd add the state of Michigan and the entire Midwest to that too. Whether you're looking to visit Climax for the very first time or you're looking to come back to Climax, or maybe you just need that getaway without really getting away, think about Eldred Homestead Bed and Breakfast because I guarantee you Chris and Rand are going to give you a very memorable stay. For more information or to book your stay, you can check out their listing on airbnb.com. You can give them a call at 269-808-8183 or send an email to eldredhomestead at gmail.com. And Climax the Podcast would not be possible, especially episodes like this, without the access to the archives of Prairie Historical Society, documenting the histories of Climax Scots and the surrounding areas since 1984. They are a pivotal non-profit organization that helps keep the history of our towns alive. PHS is able to do what they do because of the generous contributions of their supporting members, and memberships start at just $15 per year. That will get you their six bi-monthly newsletters throughout the year. And there may be some more online things that are going to come with that membership. We're actually kind of reviewing that right now with the board. And hopefully within the next couple of weeks, we'll have some more information to share on that front. For now, you can mail those donations to PHS, 107 North Main Street, P.O. Box 82, Climax Michigan 49034. And make sure to give them a like on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Climax PHS. And just like that, the business is done. Even though this episode is a day and a half to two days late coming out, I want to squeeze in one little bit of monologuing because I just want to say thank you to everybody who was part of the Caroling on the Corners events in Climax and Scott's last weekend. It was Climax on Saturday night. It was Scott's on Sunday, and everyone deserves their flowers for that, whether it was the businesses and organizations who helped put on the Caroling on the Corners events. I was lucky enough to be in Climax and Scott's both nights And it's probably one of my favorite nights I've had since I've been back in Southwest Michigan because it was just drowning myself in just the fun, the community, and friends I haven't seen in a long, long time. The chance to just sing together, be together, and ring in the holidays. It was a special weekend for me, and I hope it was for a lot of you out there in listener land. And now it's time to segue to the main event. And on all of these Salute to veteran series, I've said something similar, but we're going to put in a little bit of a trigger warning, if you will. And I'm probably going to lean into that a little harder on this one because Larry has quite a tale of things that happened to him during literal times of war in this world. Some things might make you smile and laugh. Others are going to be very, very real stories of Larry's experience fighting for his country. And I realize those kinds of stories may not be for everyone for a variety of reasons, but know that this is Larry's true experience from his time serving his country. Now, one last thing to note as well, because I did have to kind of break this apart and put it back together, you're gonna get a couple of wacky sound effects where basically there was just no smooth way to edit two things together. So if you hear record scratches or robot noises or whatever the heck I put in there, Just know that's to kind of cover the gaps where we had to put things back together in the editing of this episode. And now, without further ado, let's get into that main event of episode 22, the Salute to Veterans series, with Dwayne Drowlett Jr. and Larry Jenkins.
0: Well, we've got another fella here. I'm going to let him introduce himself. We all know him as Jinx. But I, somehow, I don't think that's his real name. You better tell us who you are and what you're up to.
2: I'm uh, Lawrence Jenkins, born in 1927, or January 1924. Uh, I graduated from high school in 1942, and of course at that time everybody was being drafted into the service so I didn't want to be in the infantry. I joined the Air Corps and I went through a sheet metal school where I'd be working on aircraft and uh, I didn't particularly like that so I had a chance to take tests and go through a, ve- uh, a lot of physical and mental tests and towards pilot training. I ended up in Maxwell airfield from Maxwell, Montgomery, Alabama and where I took pre-flight and then I had primary in uh, in Arcadia, Florida. That's when uh, uh, here's a uh, PT-17 an open cockpit biplane 225 horses and here I am only 19 years old and I, you, you talk about a thrill after your instructor takes you to one of these fields and you're shooting touch and goes and we go back to take off again he says stop I'm going to get out, you take and make three landings and you can imagine how a person feels three landings in an airplane that you've never flown except with an instructor so I did, I did it and then I Passed it real well. Went through a 20-hour pass Passed, and uh, with a civilian, went to a 40-hour test with a military army captain, and was sent to basic training at Greenwood, Mississippi. From there, I went to Twin Engine at Columbus, Mississippi. I graduated uh, from Columbus, Mississippi, in January 7, 1944 and became a second lieutenant at the age of 19. Then I was sent to Salt Lake City where I uh, picked up a... we gathered our crew together, which was ten men. And uh, we were sent to Sioux City for two months of flying B-17 uh, train uh, four-engine training. And uh, they were in dire need of, uh, of uh, Crews overseas because they were losing so many aircraft. The second Bomb Group sent up 28 one day to Regan's, uh to Styra. It was a uh, aircraft factory where they made the Me 109. 28 planes went up, 14 were lost, and I think there were only seven ships that didn't have damage that they could take off the next day. So they brought in a bunch of 20 B- B-24 pilots and stuck them into the 17s and they went up the second day and they lost another large quantity. So, when I got over there, uh, I uh, thought, my galley, I haven't flown for a day or so and I'm ready to go end the war. Uh, just a young kid, you know, and I Said, let's go and they put my name on the on the list to fly the next day and they wanted me to fly to Polestria Romania where they had oil fat, oil refineries and uh, the Germans uh, were very they didn't want the, they were daredevils too but uh, I saw flat come up oh, probably. Quarter of a mile off our wings in the air, but then when we started to the IP down the railroad track into Palesti, all hell broke loose. Then the sky was just black with, with, with uh, these exploding 88 shells and uh, I think 105s they had. And as they'd explode, the shrapnel would fly and hit your plane, go through it, you know, and. Uh, So you always come back. You jump back out, count all the holes in your ship, and nobody was hurt. And uh, the next time we went up, I went to Budapest, and that's another bad target. And uh, on that target, we got I think 200 holes in our ship, and it killed one of our our left our left waist gunner was killed on that one, and that was uh, a. Real bad because we've trained for six months and to have a young kid 19 years old. And uh, uh, from then on, when I was a little leery about going up. I, I surely wasn't looking forward to going on another trip. But we went to uh, Rostov, uh, Romania. We got up there just about 10 minutes from the target. We lost an engine. We couldn't stay with the group. So we turned around, because you're not going over a target alone. We turned around and headed back towards our base. And I said, well, I said, we've dropped bombs before in the Adriatic. I don't want to lose them. We got 300 miles to go with three engines. So I said, let's pick out a secondary target. So we did. We bombed it. But by that time you were drawing such high RPM, another engine went down. So we had two engines and we got 250 or 300 miles to go. And I uh, immediately, I'm on the intercom and I'm telling them to throw out everything but their chute. That means flax suits Bomb sights, anything that weighed a pound or more, throw it out. Cut the doors off the aircraft because if you have to leave in a hurry, because fighters were around, but they so, didn't see us. We were evidently low enough, and we still had an 8,000-foot mountain to go over. And I, we were still losing altitude. And I said, "We'll never make it." I said to the, I called to the, ball turret gunner. I said, "Can you get that ball turret out?" I said, you've got to get it out, you got to smash it out somewhere, we're not going to get back to base. And they went to it and they got ball-toured out, and by then you could just stay at 133 miles an hour, which is a beast slow, that's just about stalling speed of a 17. But we cleared the mountains, got to our base, and the plane was worthless. But being a new crew, you always got the oldest, the worst ships. The newer, the older crews always picked the best ships. So you got the the dogs, as you say. So you were having trouble on a lot of trips. They want to get the numbers up, but they didn't know whether they're going to make it or not. So, one of the missions that I remember very clearly was going into Vienna. We hit the high IP, IP and uh, We were hitting uh, a refinery right on the edge of the Danube, almost to the center of town. And the flak is intense. Uh, It's all around you, and uh, you're a little bit scared as each shell comes and explodes near you. Well, we turned off the IP to the left. I don't know why they did that. They went right over Vienna. They should have turned to the r- right, and they would have been away. But uh, we dropped our bombs, and they just started to make the turn. The brand new, shiny B-17 was ours now, and that radar could pick that, that nice new ship awful easy. And one shell hit in the nose, one hit in the number three engine, and it hit me. I didn't know I was hit, but uh, I was blinded by, I don't know what, whether it was a loss of blood, loss of oxygen, or the trauma or what. But anyway, I was blinded to where I couldn't see. Somehow, I must have, that day I put my parachute under the seat. Our parachutes weren't on. We had harnesses that we hooked them on. I was in a hurry, so I, put it under my seat instead of putting it back on the oxygen bottles, and uh, evidently I reached down put it on and I tried, to, I got up, stood up and both legs collapsed and uh, not being able to see, I didn't know much about it, but I pushed and I pulled and I crawled and I did everything to get to the bomb bays, hoping maybe somebody had, had pushed the button that would open them because the nose was hit hard, and I didn't think I could make it out. I landed in the bomb bays, and they wouldn't open. Everybody had bailed out. The fire was coming in the bomb bays, so I said, well, hell, it won't be long. It'll be all over with. Because you're in shock, you don't have fear. And about that time, a fellow grabbed my shoulder and tried to lift me up. Of course, I couldn't help him. I was loss of oxygen. Twenty thousand feet—you don't last too long. But I did time to pull the emergency under the step that he was stepping on. He did, and the bomb base flew open, and out I went. I landed in—I—I I pulled my chute and passed out. I landed in the field. Chute was pulling me through the field, and I could smell the wheat field. You know, I knew being raised on farm. But anyway, I heard these strange voices, <laughs> Germans talking, and I of course didn't understand German. They grabbed me by each arm, took the chute off, threw me in the back of a truck, and there I laid, and they were bouncing over these fields and these hard rubber tires, and it was then I was beginning to feel the pain. But I passed out again, fortunately, and I ended up in a. Uh, I called it a first aid station, but it was a home. Well, when I ran out of tape last
0: week, uh, Larry, uh, you had just been shot down over Germany, and uh, maybe you can connect from there.
2: Uh, Yes, I was taken to uh, a home on the edge of Vienna, and. I had come to then pretty well and they pulled my bones back in my legs and wrapped. They used uh, crepe paper, rolls of crepe paper to uh, wrap your legs in. And uh, the people stood around, a lot of them were standing around looking in the windows, you know. And of course we had bombed the city and... Uh, there's a lot of anger uh, amongst them, which I can't blame. But uh, about three in the afternoon, see, they take their own people to the hospitals first. Yeah. Then, about six o'clock in the afternoon, why well, they took me to a hospital, and I had passed out again till I got there. And then I woke up on one of the glitter carrier things, and uh, and I looked into the eyes of this nun, Sister Maria Abneropoulos, and uh, she spoke no English. Of course, I didn't understand German at that time. And uh-huh. the uh, finally, they she went up and uh, brought down an Englishman that knew a little bit about uh, German but the main thing he knew English which we communicated back and forth there and he said uh, uh, sooner or later you'll be taken to a room where there's three or four other Americans and what they were waiting for is an interpreter well we landed on uh, went down on a Sunday and Sunday uh, is just like any other place. They don't work on Sunday. Oh, yeah. So he, he wouldn't come until Monday, so they kept me down there until Monday until the interpreter could come. Uh, this is one of the things that the Gestapo made sure that you weren't with some other uh, Americans that had been there for weeks or months. But then I went up, they took me up to the room after he interpreted tried to interpret me and uh, at this room these were other Americans in there. One of them was shot down the same day I was and had busted that leg. But, uh, I, I passed out again from loss of blood or trauma or something. And about three days I was out. And, uh, When I woke, I looked down at my legs and they had swelled to about the size of a six-inch stovepipe. And they had turned black, just as black as the ace of spades. And I I didn't know what they were going to do, but the sisters stayed there with me pretty near constantly. One of them would stay there and kept feeling in my legs, you know, and watching them. And if any fever came up, by well, then they would have taken them off. But uh, fortunately, uh, uh, I kept them. But uh, at the hospital, I was put near a window, and the windows are open. Uh, no, sh- no shades. They didn't want the glass, you know, to be broken. But the bombers would come over. I had a a mirror, somebody had loaned me there, and I could look out the window and look up at the bombers. But it got to where they were coming so close with bombs that uh, I began to fear, because they couldn't move me. Everybody else went down to a sub-basement. But they couldn't move me, and I had to stay on the third floor of this hospital. And the uh, bombs when they'd start falling, the most horrible sound you've ever heard if you lay under them. But uh, they would come, they would, you could hear them coming, popping across, and uh, uh, if you knew one went up, blew a house up over here maybe a quarter of a mile, you knew it was going beyond another 75 feet or 100, but one day I uh, laid there and they took a house right right next to our hospital out. And that's when I decided uh, if I could get out to Stalag 17B I was going to go, and even though uh, there was less care out there. But uh, four or five of us went. I had casts on both legs, so uh, a couple other Americans, one that had an eye uh, had eye operation. He could carry or put, drag you, drag you out to a bus and then the bus would try to get you to a train station but the train stations uh, had been bombed and you had to find one rail out of Vienna and we finally they found one for us. It was at night because they won't run them in day. And they threw me onto to the one of these coaches and they'd, all they are is a wood seat in there with a wood back, too, and they threw my two gas up over the back of the next seat, and, uh, and these train would stop every while to pick up uh, uh, I don't know whether there were workers or what, whether they were traveling to get out of Vienna or what, but uh, they'd stop and then you'd be waiting and these Germans would come in set right next to you, pay no attention to you. And I got, I think it was 37 kilometers out to uh, Krims, Austria. And uh, three or four other Americans that came with me, uh, they uh, put me on one of these, I don't know what you call them, carts where they have the wheels they pull around, you know. Are they Druze or something like that? Uh, whatever, and they left me. And they said, we'll be back for you. Well, it's last of October and you're up high on uh, more or less the Alps, and it begins to snow, and all I had on was a thin pair of German pajamas, which looked like, uh, like you were a prisoner because they were striped. And there they laid, and the snow was coming down, and I was freezing, and no one around and they had one little tiny light up above and it wasn't very bright. They never had bright lights. And I was shivering cold and I was getting wet and uh, I must have laid there three or four hours before uh, a vehicle, which their vehicles, they didn't use gas. They used uh, charcoal or wood some way to to operate their trucks, so it came, picked me up, put me on that, took me up to the hospital part of 17B, and they put me in with a, I think he was a Romanian, in a room, and there uh, they left you for several days to see uh, if any problems come or if you had any lice or you. Whatever. Anyway, uh, also the the fellow next to me was so sick. I I don't know if he lived anyway, but uh, if one passed away, they brought him in and laid him in that room. And finally, they moved me into another room with. Uh, uh, there we had uh, three of the Americans that came from Vienna with me. So we had four of us in. Uh, one of them, I couldn't get up, one of them could walk with a full-length cast, he swung his leg. And he uh, more or less helped me all the time until uh, a Russian, I guess he would, they say a general, he was a school teacher in Moscow anyway. He would come and help you and uh, another Russian's laid over here, dying. An American came in from the balls, had gangrene, he died. Uh, we had several other, we had a P-47 guy come in, he had all his, his feet were froze, so they brought him in. Toes were black, so they reached over to the pair of shears and clipped off his toes, so he was without toes. And. Another infantryman came in, he'd been shot, and the bullet went through and stuck under his skin in his back, and he, so they operated and pulled that out and gave that to him. But you, you were with all nationalities. There was a, uh, an Italian that had a stove blow up and blinded him, See, they made their own stuff that they could. And uh, he'd come around every morning, hit the bed on me, and, and uh, speak a little bit of that international language that we had. And they'd bring in, uh, they bring in a bunch of Romanians, after the, after the Romanians uh, capitulated, the Germans put them in boxcars and brought them over to to our Stalag. Well, they got hit by American bombers, and they, of course, they, they keep them in the boxcars, the guards run, but they stayed in the boxcar See, and they were oh, they were just battered up, legs off, arms, Not expected to live. A lot of them, of course, a lot of them were killed instantly. And uh, then uh, as the war went on, we would, uh, the room would change periodically because some would be passing on and others would be brought in to where we own our beds. We only got to where there's about Uh, 12 inches between us. Well, the beds aren't much of a bed. They're straw, straw in a mat, mattress, and that's what you had. And you had one thin, thin, uh, blanket, but it was so thin and it was only six foot long. So it didn't cover you very well. But uh, the Red Cross had brought in some uh, winter coats because it was winter they brought in some and gave each one of us so we had something to throw over our our bodies that helped but it was so cold in, there in the winter sometimes you could see your breath you, uh, your breath uh, would almost freeze but uh, we'd get a uh, one slice of black bread in the morning with uh, earth sack uh, coffee, they called it. Uh, and uh, at noon we got a, a bowl, a little bowl of uh, uh, not rye. Barley? Barley soup, yeah. Which had never been cleaned or anything so it was just dirt. Dirty, I mean it was brown. And you'd get these black seeds, if you've ever seen how these little black seeds that most fields have, they never cleaned anything and they were awful bitter so you'd try to sort around them and then at night you'd have another slice of black bread and you'd get a little, oh, half a cup of watered potatoes, they call it, which they never cleaned because Probably it was a good thing because you had your uh, the skins and all, the dirt and all to eat. Then uh, once in a while we'd get a Red Cross parcel and we'd split it between two of us, might last for two weeks. And towards the end it would be one for three weeks or with three guys because they just, the railroads could not bring them in. The, uh, they had to come from Switzerland, right cross parcels, and they uh, probably the Germans took their share, but when they get to us there wasn't too many. Anyway, I uh in March, I hadn't taken a bath or anything. In March, towards the end, they decided, well, we'll try to get you up. So what they did, they I figured, well, if we could just drill holes in your legs, in the bones, maybe a callus would form, but no such a thing because you didn't have enough food with any yeah. calcium. it wouldn't form. and You were losing weight all the time, continuously. But, uh, so what they did, they built, that didn't work, so they built stilts by uh, putting slabs of plaster on each side of my legs and uh, putting a, a ring around it up at the knee and a ring down around that the foot so you could... and they were going to get me up, well it's kind of odd but the bones were moving around in there, it didn't hurt, it was just annoying because uh, when you'd walk the bone would stretch out, you know, <laughs> back and I got to take a bath at the end uh, but it was in cold water, but it was still, felt pretty good. But they got me to where I could stand up, which was very, uh, very painful because all the calluses had worn off your feet and it was all tender. And I had had infection in both, both legs from pressure from the cast. Well they got me up, stood me up, and uh, each day they'd do that maybe for a minute and finally got to where they could uh, I could accept it. But then my knees were froze. So being in casts so long they freeze up. So they'd come in and they'd put all the weight they could on them and uh, then these casts they'd set me on the bed and then they'd let me play all day long, just swing when I got a little break, finally I kept breaking, breaking more until I got uh, got it where I could bend them. And uh, one of the fellows came in from Vienna and he said the hospital I was in had been hit uh-huh. with a bomb. And uh, uh, sure enough, it had it had hit the kitchen part of the hospital, tore that up. But the people that were down in the cellar uh, weren't hurt at all. So they were very fortunate. But if I'd have been up on the top floor, I don't know how fortunate I would be. But I was glad to go as far as I could. I, I didn't want to be killed now because I'd been there too long. And pretty soon, the, Russians started around Vienna. We were on a uh, Mesa up there, real high, and you could see Vienna off in the distance. Uh, The big guns were firing into Vienna. You could sit there at night and watch them. And pretty soon they started moving our way. Pretty soon they, they moved all the people that could walk out of our camp, took them east to be with American lines or out of the way of the Russians. But few of us that couldn't walk, couldn't travel, were left there. And uh, that night the Jerrys put their guns in around us and the Russians would fire over us. <laughs> and, the, and the big battles would start to be this. The night was lit up just like. Day, I mean, so many tracers, so many uh, flares that they were throwing up, you know. And uh, finally, a, a Russian patrol. They moved further back into the mountains, and the Russian patrol came up and they said, because uh, our our Russian friend could speak, said speak to him, and we had a a uh, uh, Russian from. He, he was an American, but he was from uh, uh, Pennsylvania, and his folks were were not speaking English, so he had to have English and Russian. So we had the news all the time pretty well, and uh, they'd say, well, we're coming in, we'll be in the next day or so, you know, and they wouldn't come, they'd back up. Finally, they they did come in one morning. They came up the hill and I said, oh well, boy, Americans are coming because there, here come all these American trucks, American artillery. And then they turned sideways at us and I see it was a red star on the side of the truck. <laughs> well anyway, they just drove them right through the fence. And all the foreigners uh, that weren't walked out why they headed for trims and they picked up everything they could. Brought it back to the camp, brought the wine and stuff and gave us wine and, and of course that affected us right off the bat because we hadn't had anything. Um, I think it was the 10th or the 13th of May, the war was over but not for the Russians. Uh, the Americans came in, two ambulances and two trucks, and they picked up what people that couldn't walk, Americans, and the ambulance they put me in, the guy had a loaf of white bread just cooked, baked, you know, from American life, he handed it over to me and I had about six hands grabbed that, (laughs) and there wasn't any crumbs left. And I thought, boy, what did that driver think uh, about that? But they got us in there and they started to the spec And, of course, you're going through uh, miserable roads because of the, the Russians and the Germans fighting through there. There were still dead horses and things in the laying around. But we came to across two American ambulances that had just been burnt crisp, right down. And I found out that they were coming in two weeks uh, before to get us out of there, before the Russians. But the Russians shelled them when they saw the cars. They didn't know the difference. They shelled them, and I guess none of the Americans were killed. They jumped out and went into probably behind rocks and stuff there. They uh, weren't killed, and so we would have been out of there two weeks before that, but uh, they did come in after the war and we went back through and, uh, of course, the Russians, they just, uh, I don't know if they're Mongolians or what, but uh, they just in groups of 10 or 12, they'd stop you and they were all loaded with vodka and they'd want you to drink to them and I tried just to sip a little and throw the West away, but, the uh, I know this one village that we came into, uh, uh, the, one of the persons came out and begged us to take his young daughter with us. We didn't dare because the Russians were searching us too often and I don't know what happened, uh, whether she mm. got away or what, but we got back to uh, uh, to find a bridge that we could get across into Lens. When we got into Lens, we went uh, into an American hospital that they'd taken over from somewhere. And I tell you, it was—it was just like being born again. You had clean sheets. They put us in clean sheets. They. Uh, wanted to know what we'd have and of course we all said hamburger and a glass of milk. <laughs> I took a couple bites of the hamburger and drank a little bit of milk and threw it up. <laughs> so so that ended my, uh, I don't know how they fed us then. from then on I can't remember what they did. But uh, we were there a week and I, so I wanted to get out. Uh, I could walk with crutches and I wanted to get out, and so did my friend here. We we went out one evening, and <laughs> i always remember I had a hand, a pocket full of chocolate bars. I was trying to throw chocolate bars at this gal, the young gal going down the road. I wanted to talk to her, you know. She was scared to death. Well, I just threw them at her, but then uh, I got with the Polish. A group of Polish people had taken over a home, and I went there, and they—they they had uh, food there, and uh, they were so happy to see an American that they just, uh, you know, kissed you on both cheeks and and kind of thanked you in the, in their way. But then I, it got pretty dark and. I said I got to get back and find the hospital. Well, one of them told me how. Well, I started back, and I stopped, and my friend here, Chapin, he sat there with a couple women on the step, and I walked up to him, and and, uh, and he'd been talking with them just more or less. And about that time, the M.P.s come <laughs> up, and they got us. <laughs> From then on, you didn't get out of the hospital. And next time, they they quarantine you right in, wouldn't let you out. But it was a matter of uh, time that you went back through uh, field hospitals. We were going to field hospitals until we got to Munich. And in Munich, uh, they were, we were waiting on one night for them to fly us out to Reims, France. So, we did fly out the second night and ended up in Reims, France. From Reims, France, why I was there for a week and then they flew me to a uh, hospital in Paris, number one hospital in Paris, and I stayed there three weeks. And then they put me on a plane and flew me all the way into Mitchellfield, New York. Got there at night. They, uh, I was on a litter, and they, they lift trucks would come up lift you out on the litter. You'd say something these guys wouldn't even talk to you and they took took us to a part of a barracks, put us in there, and locked the door, so we couldn't get out and uh By the way, they started, in Rheims, France, they started feeding us uh, five times a day. We couldn't eat very much but any time we felt like we could eat, they'd give us food. And at every hospital they keep uh, giving us a certain amount of food, but it was always small amounts, five, six times a day. So we got back to the American lines and, uh, I mean to the United States and then they flew me from Metrofield right into Battle Creek and I went right over my hometown, <laughs> my my own house, and I got into the Percy Jones, they took us by ambulance, Percy Jones. I was up on the 10th floor in Percy Jones. And of course I I got right on the phone called my folks. And boy, they were coming up right now. So they came up and I sat there at the elevator and when they got off the elevator and I was looking right at them, I started to bawl. And I bawled. It was because I was so happy, not because I was any anything else. Right. I was just happy right. that I was crying. And spent two years at Percy Jones. That's about the end of But There's a lot.
0: Larry, I was wondering, you know, as you were talking about these fellows that you were hospitalized with there in Germany, Mm -hmm. uh, have you been able to contact some of them that made it home?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've, even the sister, uh, Sister Mary Abneropoulos, I uh, I, fellow in Bunky, Louisiana, was with me most of the time in Vienna and at, He came out of, he had a bad leg, so he came out with me, but he had got a hold of an American, or not American, a German uh, doctor, I don't know, doctor of what, that spoke uh, English.
0: Talking about the the folks that you uh, kept in contact with.
2: Well, this fellow from Bumpy, uh, Louisiana, he contacted somebody in, Vienna, and the fellow located his plane where it had hit, gone down. He was on B twenty four. It hit a house, and he located his sister Maria of She was in a home in Styra, a uh, uh, retirement home, and so he found he he found uh, where my plane he figured went down, and. Uh, See, it only takes them about a week, the Germans, and they have it cleaned up and gone. So, uh, anyway, he wrote and told me and he showed me where, he showed me a map of where our our squadron had come in there, and it's true. I mean, I knew where where the IP was and what part of the town we were going to be hitting, and uh, so he got this for the fellow at Bunky and he immediately called me and gave me uh, Sister Maria's address. This is fifty-three years after I had been away from her and she wrote back and she, uh, in German and I had no way of deciphering her. Well, uh, one of the gals that used to work here Ellen Pearce? Her mother was a war bride from Germany. Oh. She interpreted me as it starts with a P I think, Bruce? anyway she interpreted. Within a couple hours she called me back. <laughs> Her mother lived in Kalamazoo and told me what she said and uh, it was interesting and I took uh, and wrote her, and I kept in contact with her even today. I send her a little money each, each July, July was shot down in, and I send her a little money and she always writes back, well she uh, had to be in more special care this last year when I wrote, so she's not in that home, she's in a uh, another place where they can care for her better, but she still can remember me and she still uh, remembers her American, she says. I still remember the American. She said, I know that the doctors, which are young gals, would come up in our room. She said, I knew the doctors would come up there and they'd study in your room because some of the guys would get these uh, Red Cross parcels and they'd have a little candy in them or, or uh, some sweets, she called them some sweets and then they'd give right. the, these doctors these, these uh, uh, sweets once in a while. So uh, I'm happy that I'm still in contact and that she's still alive. She's about uh, nine years older than I am, so she'd be in her 85, 86 years old. that's
0: about it well thank you larry we may be adding some on here uh if you think of some more but uh thank you very much
1: thanks everybody not just for joining this week but for your patience as it took me about a day and a half two days to get a little bit more caught up to speed we should be back to a more normal schedule next week hopefully Make sure to like, share, and subscribe to your favorite podcast feed. Remember, they're always all there at ClimaxThePodcast.com. One of the biggest things right now everybody can do to support is to get on board with ClimaxScottsDigitalNetwork.com. That would be a separate subscription, also free, but you're going to want to make sure to get those updates because there's going to be a lot more content to come. And one more time, thanks to those who helped make this show possible, Prairie Historical Society, especially for this episode, Kristen Wachowski with State Farm and then Eldred Homestead B&B. And thanks to you for listening every week so we can keep bringing you more of Climax the podcast, love letter to a small town. I'll talk to you guys in about a week.